title to our message this morning is called The School of Affliction. Last time we saw that Moses had risen up to try to deliver his people by killing the Egyptian and shockingly his own people hated him for it. When Stephen retells this story in Acts chapter 7 in verse 35, we read, this Moses Israel rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So let's kind of reconsider the lay of the land here this morning. Uh, God's people are being brutalized. They have been sold into slavery. Uh, Their firstborn male children were slaughtered. And so God, in his grace, he raises up Moses, a prince of Egypt, educated and trained in Pharaoh's own house to deliver this people. That's what Stephen says in Acts 7, that God sent him, Moses, as a ruler and redeemer. So what happens? Well, Israel rejects him. Uh, And this was the history of all of Israel. This is the point of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. He ends it by saying, uh, you stiff-necked people or uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? We saw that Israel has persecuted every single deliverer that God had sent to save them. So this week we get to see, well, how does God respond to that? What does God do? What would you do? Uh, Children, uh, boys and girls, what if you tried to save a woman who was getting beaten up by a robber on the side of the road? And when you went to save her, she starts screaming at you and hitting you. You would probably say something like, well, if you, if you don't want my help, then I'm not going to help you. But that's not what God does. God, is in his incomprehensible love, instead of abandoning the people who are rejecting his deliverer, he turns to the deliverer and starts to afflict the deliverer. He strips Moses of his royalty, and he sends him into the desert for 40 years so that he can share in their suffering. Again, we find that God is telling a deeper story than than merely Moses and Israel here. God is showing us the gospel in Exodus. There was one who was coming who would lay down his own reputation and his own royalty He would have to leave the palace of heaven and enter into the affliction in the wilderness of this world. And what did we do? We we rejected the Savior from heaven, and so he, God, sent him to earth to share in our affliction. That's what Hebrews 4.15 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is one of the most comforting truths in all of Scripture, 
that we do not have a God who merely knows about our suffering. We have a Savior who put on flesh and shared in our suffering. That's the story here in Exodus 2. God afflicted Moses so that he could share in the afflictions of Israel. He sent Moses into the school of affliction so that he could learn how to sympathize with their sufferings. And that's our big idea this morning, that God appoints his deliverers to great affliction so that they can tenderly sympathize with his suffering people. So let's begin with our doctrine. If you recall from verses 11 through 12, Moses had left the palace. He went out to survey the burdens of his people. He finds an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Hebrew slaves, and so he kills him. The next day in verse 13, he goes out. He sees two Hebrews fighting with one another, and so he says to the one in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So let's pick up in verse 14. He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. Let's stop right here. So here we read that Moses was afraid. That's why he fled. But in one of the passages I read last week, Hebrews eleven twenty seven, we read that by faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is one of those things where it's like, okay, I got to figure out how these two passages reconcile together. One says he was afraid and one says he was not afraid. So how do we reconcile them? Well, simple. Remember that Moses had left Egypt twice. He left Egypt the first time here in this passage uh, after he killed the Egyptian. And then secondly, he left Egypt along with all of Israel a second time after God had sent the last plague, Exodus 12, 37. So Moses being afraid here in Exodus 2.15 is his first departure. And Moses not being afraid in Hebrews 11.27 is his second. So that's how you reconcile those two passages together. It's pretty clear once you you study it just a little bit. But what I want to ask is that even though Moses was afraid here, does that mean he had no faith? No, we know he had faith. Uh, Hebrews 11, earlier, he left the the palace. He chose not to be uh, um, identified with the Pharaoh's family. He chose to be rather afflicted with the people of Israel. By faith, he did that. So Moses had faith before he fled, but it was a weak faith. It was a, a faith that God was going to purify in the wilderness. And beloved, Isn't that how our faith works often? As those loved by God, we really do have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. But we often find that our faith is so 
pitiful and, and so weak. How, how many of us are, are frightened as we leave this place and start seeing headlines and start seeing people talking and we hear the news of the world and we shrink back at what we hear? How does God strengthen our faith? Through affliction. Through affliction. Uh, Romans 5, 3 through 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, our, our afflictions. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. To summarize, Paul is saying that affliction produces hope or faith. Don't you find that the saints that you know who have been afflicted the most are the ones that have the strongest faith? Why is that? Well, because they've learned that through suffering, that no matter what happens to them, God is always faithful, that he never breaks his promises. So, so though the floodwaters come, God sends an ark. Though famine strikes the land, God sends birds to feed Elijah. Though the wilderness journey takes 40 years, God preserves the shoes on their feet and the clothes on their back. Though Christ is crucified on the cross and all hope seems lost. Three days later, he raises from the dead and conquers death and hell and Satan. Affliction is the great strengthener of our faith. That's one of the reasons why God sent Moses into the wilderness, to strengthen his faith. When he returns, he defies the most powerful man in the world. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's look halfway through verse 15. Moses stayed in the land of Midian. Midian was well over 200 miles away from Egypt. It was quite a journey. The Midianites were the sons of Abraham's second wife, Keturah, Genesis 25, 1 through 4. And if we just scan the biblical data, we find that it was the Midianites who had sold Joseph into slavery at Potiphar's house, Genesis 37, 36. It was the Midianites who, led by Balak, hired Balaam to curse Israel, Numbers 22, 1 through 7. It was the Midianite women who led Israel astray into sexual immorality and to Baal worship, Numbers 25, 1 through 9. And it was the Midianites who God commanded Moses to pour out his vengeance upon, Numbers 31. So any Israelite who reads this history of Moses after the fact would see how thick the irony is here. Moses was rejected by his own people, but he's accepted by Israel's enemies. This is another foreshadow of the gospel. When Christ came into the world, the Jews as a whole rejected him. The apostle Paul says at the end of Acts, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So that's another reason that God sent Moses into the wilderness, into Midian. 
because the gospel is for all nations. That's the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham, that in, all, in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So what did Moses do when he arrived in Midian? Well, let's look at the end of verse 15. It says that he sat down by a well. Now, wells are massively significant in the scripture. In Proverbs 5.15, husbands are commanded to drink from their own well, which is a euphemism for being satisfied with their own wives. In Song of Solomon 4.15, the bride is called a well of living water. In Genesis 24, 10 through 15, Abraham's servant found Isaac's wife at a well. In Genesis 29, 1 through 12, Jacob found his wife Rachel at a well. Can you think of any significant event in the New Testament that happened at a well? John chapter 4. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, a foreigner, and he asked her where her husband was. She said, I had none. He said, you're right, you've had five, and the one that you're with right now is not your husband. Jesus, when he offered salvation to her, he was essentially offering his hand in marriage as her heavenly husband to save her. And what happened to Moses here at this well? He found himself a wife. Let's look at verses 16 through 21. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. Now, from this section, we discover um, both the character of the Midianite family and the character of Moses. So, first of all, um, consider the character here of this Midianite family. In spite of the fact that the Midians as a whole were enemies of God's people, it seems that this Midianite clan were worshipers of the true and living God. Ruel, this this priest of Midian, his name literally means friend of God or shepherd of God. And later when Israel leaves Egypt, he meets them on the road and not only does he confess his faith in the true and living God, Exodus 18, 10 through 11, but he offers sacrifices to God, Exodus 18, 12. But secondly, we discover here the character of Moses. Moses sees these seven women, they're being treated harshly. Verse 17 says, shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So for the third time, in just a few verses, uh, Moses defends the defenseless. First, he defended the slave from the Egyptian in verse 12. Second, he defended the weaker Hebrew from the other Hebrew aggressor in verse 13. And number three, he now defends these women from this, uh, these wicked shepherds. 
but he doesn't merely save them. Verse 17 says that he also watered their flock. He saved them and he served them. He protected them and he provided for them. And Ruel was so impressed with Moses' character that he offered his daughter Zipporah as his wife. And so for the next 40 years, Moses is living in the wilderness as a shepherd, tending the flock of, of Ruel. Now, despite Moses' bravery and his love of justice for the oppressed and his faithfulness, the wilderness here proves to be a school of affliction. So let's consider for a moment the 30,000-foot view. Where did Moses live before Midian? Not just in Egypt. He lived in the palace. Um, Moses had servants. Moses' servants had servants. It wasn't the lowly servants that served him. It was the chief servants. He had nearly unlimited power. He had nearly unlimited wealth. But when he arrives here in Midian, he has nothing. In fact, the text emphasizes that, that he sits down by a well. The only possessions that he had were the possessions that were on his person. He had no home. He had no place to lay his head. He was no longer a prince. He was a nobody. He had to sit by a well where people gather in hopes that somebody would show him hospitality and take him home. He was a homeless person. And this must have been such a affliction. Um, we, we get scared when we go to the grocery store and we see inflation because we do the, the, the calculation and we think, well, that might mean uh, that I might not be able to get Netflix this week or some other creature comfort or that extra box of donuts or whatever. Moses lost everything. He lost everything. Not only did he lose all of his possessions, he lost every single relationship that he ever knew. All of Israel was 200 miles away, and they hated him, and the most powerful man in the world was trying to kill him. It was a nightmare. It was so heavy on his mind that he even names one of his sons after his affliction. Uh, look at verse 22. She, Zipporah, gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, which means stranger or foreigner, for he says, I have been a foreigner, a, a sojourner in a foreign land. I'm a stranger in a strange land. Moses felt it in his soul what it meant to be an outcast. In the prime of his life, I mean, I'm just... In the prime of his life, all of his education, all of his training now seemed to be wasting away in the desert. What was God doing? Why would God do this to him? Matthew Henry says here, quote, Egypt accomplished Moses as a scholar, a gentleman, a statesman, a soldier. But he lacked one thing in which the court of Egypt could not befriend him, 
end quote. What is that one thing? It's affliction. So that brings us then to our doctrine this morning that, that God appoints his deliverers to great affliction so that they can tenderly sympathize with his suffering people. Just consider a couple of proofs, just two of them, of this doctrine throughout Scripture. Proof number one, God appointed Joseph's, Joseph's affliction. God appointed Joseph's affliction. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. Uh, God gave Joseph these cryptic dreams, uh, indicating that Joseph one day would sit on a throne, Genesis 37, 5 through 11. And this dream, this prophecy revealed that Joseph, through the power of God, would save the entire known world from a seven-year famine. But before Joseph acted as a savior, what did God do to prepare him? He afflicted him. He afflicted him. Psalm 105, 17 tells us who was behind it, the, whole, the whole scene. God sent a man ahead of them, Israel, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God sent Joseph into slavery. In fact, it wasn't Joseph's brothers who ultimately had him enslaved. It was God. And this is Joseph's own testimony. He tells his brothers in Genesis 45, 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Proof number two is that God appointed Paul's affliction. God appointed Paul's affliction. The apostle Paul was the greatest human being that has ever lived in the last 2,000 years next to Jesus Christ. God made him the instrument for salvation for millions upon millions of souls. God appointed him to turn men and women and children from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, Acts 26, 18. But oh, did God afflict him. He might have, he might have been the most afflicted man in the New Testament next to Christ. The Lord said in Acts 9, 16, I will show him how much he must suffer. For the sake of my name. God was behind all of Paul's affliction. It was God who was behind the thorns in his life. 2 Corinthians 12.8. So here's then the question. Why does God afflict his deliverers? They're on his team. It's not because God is capricious or cruel. God appoints this affliction for the sake of those that he is saving. God sent Moses into the school of affliction so that he could learn how to pity and sympathize with God's people in their suffering. Children, boys and girls, let me ask you something. How are muscles built? Are muscles built by laying around in bed all day? That would be so awesome. I would be the most muscular man in the world. No. Muscles are built when we exert ourselves with great effort, when we lift and sweat and exercise. In other words, muscles are built by pressure, by great pressure. Now, let me ask you. 
How is compassion and pity built? How is compassion and pity built? Are, Are those things built by living an easy life? Kicking your feet up on the footstool with no problems? Is that how compassion is built? No. Compassion is built when we experience affliction, when we suffer. Moses, up to this point, had relative ease. It's it's 100% true that Moses was concerned with the burdens of his people, but he never experienced the burdens of his people. He never experienced them. That's what the wilderness was for. God appointed this affliction for Moses, not so that he would only know about their afflictions, but so that he would feel it in his bones. Moses already learned how to be, you know, uh, fierce as a lion in Egypt, but now God wanted to make him tender as a lamb. Only then would he be ready to deliver Israel. So that's our doctrine that God appoints his deliverers to great affliction so that they can tenderly sympathize with his suffering people. So let's look next then at our duty. I hope anyone could could see where we're going next with this. Our duty is to reinterpret affliction. Reinterpret the affliction that we face in our lives. I know, I was going through, through the membership directory, and I, I could just say, they're going through affliction, they're going through affliction, that's the affliction of their life. Many of you are going through horrible afflictions right now. You had hopes for what would be, and, and if you're not going through an affliction, just wait. Um, Just wait. You had hopes for what would become of your future. And those hopes have now vanished like the sun behind storm clouds. And you ask, why would God afflict me like this? Doesn't he know that I'm in the prime of my life? I have all these gifts, I have all these plans, I have all these dreams, I have all these gifts, these strengths, this training. What is he doing? He's building compassion in you and pity in you and sympathy in you for others. Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul says about this very thing in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. He starts out with praise to God for for exactly what I've been telling you. Blessed be God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Loved ones, God did not save you 
for your own personal comfort alone. Yes, it's true that we find infinite personal comfort in our salvation. Romans 5.1 says that, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater comfort than that. So if you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if you've received him, if you've rested in him alone for salvation, then your sins are forgiven and you have peace with God. You could walk out of that door right now and get hit by a semi and all would be well. You could sing, it is well with my soul after you get to heaven, but you could sing, it is well with my soul. You'd be fine. But God did not save you merely for your personal comfort. God saved you so that you could bring comfort upon other people. How do you learn to comfort others? Through affliction. Through affliction. The ability to comfort others and sympathize others is born in the crucible of pain. Consider that, loved ones, that God has appointed this affliction that you're facing right now, not because he delights in your agony, but so that through this affliction, you could comfort others. So reinterpret your affliction. And now let me show you how. Let's look finally at our delight this morning. Dear congregation, the Son of God, Jehovah himself, the second person of the Trinity, knows every single thing about you. He knows things about you that you don't know, that you will never know. He, he knows all the number of hairs on your head, Luke 12, 7. He, he knows every single tear that you will ever shed, Psalm 60, 56, 8. He knows all of the number of your days, Psalm 139, 16. He knows every single word that you will ever speak. He knows every single thought that you will ever think, Psalm 139, 2 through 4. And God, knew, God the Son knew all of these things about you before uh, time was ever created. He knew these things in eternity past. But. He did not experience these things the way that a human experiences them. Moses knew about all the burdens of his people, but he did not experience those burdens while he was in the palace. And so God sent him into the desert so that he would share in their blood and sweat and tears of the very people God had sent them to deliver. And likewise, God the Son knows every single burden that you will ever have to bear without ever leaving heaven. He knows all of them. But Father wanted him to know your burdens experientially. He wanted his son, to know what it felt like to have these burdens. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
Well, but take that in. Father made the son to put on weak human flesh so that he could sympathize with you. As God the son, God the son could not feel any pain. That, that's straight up doctrine of God. He's immutable. He's perfect. He's infinite. God the son, the second person of the Trinity, cannot feel pain. But as the God-man, as the incarnate God, possessing a human body and a human soul, Jesus could be afflicted, he could suffer, and he could die. Why would God the Son ever do that? Because he loved you with an everlasting love. He, he not, just like Moses, Moses saved and served. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to save and to serve. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came, he saved us through his atoning work on the cross and through his glorious resurrection. And then he served us and he continues to serve us when he became our great high priest, when he put flesh on, dealing gently with us since he himself is clothed with our weakness. John Newton says it this way. Jesus has experiential sympathy. There's a difference between theoretical and experiential. Jesus in heaven had theoretical. He, he knew comprehensively, infinitely what, what uh, pain is. But as our great high priest, he now knows it experientially. He knows our sorrows, Newton says, not merely as he knows all things, but as one who has been in our situation and who, though without sin himself, endured when upon earth, inexpressibly more for us than he will ever lay upon us. What then shall we fear? Or of what shall we complain? When all our concerns are written upon his heart, when he pities us more than we can do to ourselves. We are really good at self-pity, oftentimes in sinful ways. But we're actually not very good at righteous pity. Jesus pities us more than we pity ourselves. So I exhort you, loved ones, meditate now with me on the afflictions of Christ. Meditate with me. Four meditations. Meditation number one, meditate on who this person is. Meditate on who this person is, who this Christ is. It is simply inconceivable that Moses would have given up all the pleasures in Pharaoh's court so that he could go and live in the desert, in the wilderness. But how much more inconceivable is it that the Son of God, though he was rich, though he experienced the, per the perfect communion of God the Father and God the Spirit, that he, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. Do you realize that the incarnation exceeds the miracle of the creation of the universe? It's the greatest miracle. Meditate on it. That God would become man. That the creator would become creature. 
That he who was subject to no pain, to no weakness, to no infirmity would put flesh on himself in order to endure temptation, to endure the attacks of sinful men and devils, to cry, to weep, to shed blood, to face the terrible wrath of God, and to die as a hated man. Meditate on the person of Christ. Secondly, meditate on your afflictions in comparison with his afflictions. Meditate on your afflictions in comparison with his afflictions. Some of you, as I said, are suffering greatly right now. But what are your afflictions in comparison with his? As a believer... You will never face the wrath of God. You will never go to hell. You may experience horrible things. You may experience the bitterness of sin and the assaults of Satan. You may experience pains in your body and betrayal. And you may even be called to die a martyr's death. As a believer, there's no doubt about it. You have been called to share in the sufferings of Christ. Philippians 3.10 says, But as a believer, you will never suffer the wrath of God as Jesus Christ did. All of your afflictions, every one of them, are under the kind and watchful eye of your heavenly Father. But Christ's afflictions, they were under the eye of a holy God who cannot look at sin with approval. Jesus suffered more under the wrath of God than all of the accumulated sufferings of every man. He was a damned man. He was a cursed man. And no matter how bad your sufferings and affliction are, that will never be you if you are in Christ. Meditate on that. Thirdly, meditate on yourself. Meditate on yourself. Why would Christ, why would Christ ever willingly suffer for the likes of you and me? Why would he ever do that? Just as Israel had rejected Moses, so you, before God shed his love abroad in your heart, you rejected the Son of God in heaven. You were abominable. You are filthy rags, the scripture says. You're the worm of the dust, the scripture says. You were dead in sin. You were blind to light. You hated God and you loved every form of unrighteousness. You were unworthy of anyone to care for you. You were a child of the devil. Why would God ever send Christ to suffer for the likes of you? And yet Christ, he looked upon you with pity. He looked upon you with care and great concern, though you had no love for him. He loved you and he laid down his life for you. That's what love is. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Meditate on that. Meditate on that. And then fourthly, meditate on your future state. Meditate on your future state. 
What is your current affliction compared to the weight of glory that is in heaven reserved for you? Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Loved ones, God will pay back all of your tears with pleasures at his right hand forevermore in a very short while, a a blink of an eye. I can't believe how old I am. 44 years old, it seemed like I was 12 yesterday. And for those of you who are older than me, I know that you feel the same. All of us very soon are going to be in heaven. And it's going to seem like the blink of an eye. And in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. Consider how unconceivably happy you will be. You will be so happy that if God didn't hold you together, you would explode with joy. And you will hear the voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Meditate on that, dear congregation. So loved ones, as we close, consider just briefly what we've heard this morning. God appointed Moses to suffer in the school of affliction so that he could suffer with his people. That's who our Savior is. God the Father wasn't content with Jesus just knowing about our suffering. He wanted our Savior to experience them as our great high priest. And that is why we are also afflicted, so that we can comfort those who are under any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how relevant Exodus is. We thank you that though uh, the characters change and the plot lines twist, that, Lord, you are are ultimately telling the same story over and over again of, of your son's great love for us, and we are so thankful. God, help us to meditate on the sufferings of our Savior so that we also may be able to suffer well. Lord, prepare us in the school of affliction so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we have been comforted with. We ask these things for Jesus' sake, that he would be glorified in every thought and word and deed. Amen.